TUC Radio Archives 2002 The first nuclear chain reaction Enrico Fermi and Henry Moore Imagine a quiet back room in a bookstore in Berkeley. Twelve people sit around a table covered with a carpet from Kashmir. The Irish writer and teacher Ian Ball is about to tell the story of the beginning of the nuclear age, or at least that was the claim of Enrico Fermi when he set off the first nuclear chain reaction in an underground tennis court at the University of Chicago in December 1942. His experiment led directly to the building of the plutonium bomb that destroyed the city of Nagasaki. There are competing claims as to the beginning of the nuclear age. Was it the day of Trinity? Was it Hiroshima? Or was it Fermi, with his willingness to risk a nuclear explosion in the middle of a crowded city? But more important than a date is the need to comprehend the fundamental change that the beginning of the nuclear age has brought about. Albert Einstein warned us when he said that the unleashed power of the atom has changed everything save our modes of thinking, and thus we drift toward unparalleled catastrophe. Ian Ball's story is intriguing because it places this quote into a new context. He begins by briefly setting back the clock, reminding us of the earliest militant resistance to the beginning of the Industrial Age. Ian Ball. The story I'm going to tell now begins in 1812 in two places, in Yorkshire, in England, among the skilled weavers who, for reasons which are interesting and complex, began to break their own machines. The Luddite breaking of the looms was happening at exactly the same moment as in the New World in the Ohio Valley. Uh, Tecumseh, a young warrior, Shawnee warrior in this very rich bottomland of the Scioto Valley, uh, was organizing the last serious resistance against the Anglos as they were westering to enclose North America, as they punched their way over the Appalachian crest. And, and Tecumseh knew that, the, that what the elders were doing, the accommodations that his elders were making, was not going to work. And he decided that it was time to stand and fight. And he organized a cross-tribal alliance of young warriors. And uh, the story in the end is tragic. He, he is himself killed. But interestingly, on that site, as it turned out, um, on land that was granted to a family called Sargent. Two things later happened, and uh, the book tells this story. Uh, it's the site on which the very last passenger pigeon is seen alive. The extinction of the passenger pigeon was simply uh, inconceivable, not only to the, the original commoners who inhabited North America, but uh, also to those who settled there. The, the Anglos who settled there, uh, because the sky would go dark. It might be 70 miles by 50 miles. Interestingly, also on that very site, on the sergeant's land, the American state decided to site 
1950, the Piketon Uranium Enrichment Plant, which is now, even though it's been shut down, uh, the largest building on Earth. It's about a mile long. And it used when it was going, and it went 24 hours. It couldn't stop, in fact, because if it stopped, then the uranium hexafluoride, it was for the making of, of enriched uranium for the production of bombs. It was central to the nuclear project, to the American empire. If it stopped and the uranium hexafluoride settled, there would be a critical mass and there would be a catastrophic explosion. So it had to go 24 hours a day, and it did so for 50 years. It's an immensely toxic environment now, this beautiful bottomland. No place in North America has there been found earlier signs of agriculture. So in 1950, the largest factory on Earth was built there. The story of how that came to be is connected directly to the site that I visited in 1994 when Dick Lewontin told me to go and see Henry Moore's commemoration of the birth of the atomic age in Chicago. Or that's what Chicago wanted us to believe. That was the claim. Of course, there are other claims about the birth of the atomic age, that it really it happened in the desert of New Mexico at Alamogordo, the day of Trinity. Or that it really is Hiroshima. That was the day that the nuclear age dawned. The Chicago boys, led by a historian whom I'll come back to, um, William McNeil, wanted to put Chicago on the map and uh, make the claim that really the birth of the atomic age happened <coughs> just after half past three in the afternoon of December the 2nd, 1942, when Enrico Fermi, the Italian physicist, uh, achieved criticality that uh, the pile of uranium uh, which he assembled uh, on that spot uh, uh, became uh, a self-sustaining reaction. When I got to the site, I was amazed. The, the sculpture itself is remarkable. What's even more remarkable is the sculpture standing there behind the plaque that has been on that site since 1947. The plaque, it's like something out of Faulty Towers of uh, John Cleese, don't mention the war. The plaque reads this way. It says, on December the 2nd, 1942, man achieved here the first self-sustaining chain reaction and thereby initiated the controlled release of nuclear energy. The sculpture which stands some yards behind it and against the backdrop of what is now the Regenstein Library at the University of Chicago in Hyde Park in South Chicago, in the middle of the South Chicago ghetto. The sculpture itself is in, shall we say, tremendous tension with this plaque. Well, you can recognize it as a Henry Moore, um, but it seems to me like a stormtrooper helmet. Um, it looks like a skull, certainly. It's got these eye sockets. It's standing on a on a very sort of massy tripod. It, hits, it touches the, the ground at three points. It's 12 foot high. It's on a black plinth. I knew something extraordinarily uh, bizarre uh, had to be behind this because there was this fantastic force field between the plaque and the monument. This certainly was an, was an, was an interesting uh, icon of, of modern science.
1963, just after Kennedy's assassination, at the end of 1963, the Atomic Energy Commission signed an agreement with the California Transportation Authorities to realign Route 66 uh, in the Bristol Mountains, to straighten Route 66 by means of 23 nuclear explosions. This was part of what was called Project Plowshare and was supported and indeed, you know, intimately involved in it was Edward Teller, who lived on the hillside just behind us here, where I live, we're, we're in Berkeley here, and Edward, Edward Teller uh, was one of the key figures in uh, what is known generally as the Atoms for Peace movement. So we have to take ourselves back to 1963 as this story begins, to a time when it was still possible to imagine that the technology of death, shall we say, of mass murder of Armageddon could be, perhaps would be, redeemed by the use of nuclear power uh, for, in this case, earth moving big time. That was in early December. On the 20th of December, 1963, a three-man delegation from the University of Chicago uh, arrived in England to visit Henry Moore. He had been selected to commemorate the Fermi experiment. And the person behind this idea was a historian, William McNeil. Now, this is a man who was known to me as one of the historians of world history head of the Department of History at the University of Chicago, what we might call a Plato to NATO historian. <laughs> why, why would Chicago choose Henry Moore? Well, it was obvious. This is the great, safe, modernist master. Okay, this is the sculptor of the open air. Uh, I mean, we're all familiar with his huge bloated bronzes that, that grace all the cathedrals of capital. You know, there wasn't a week going by in the early 60s when Henry Moore wasn't getting phone calls or letters from somebody wanting him to put one of his big bronzes in front of some skyscraper, what have you. He had made a fortune. By this time, he was a very, very rich man. Henry Moore, despite the fact that he told them not to come, couldn't put them off. They arrived on December the 20th. And in fact, he already had a tiny maquette, a six-inch maquette for them, because he had said, yes, I might be interested in this project, sounds interesting. He knew nothing, I believe, about the experiment in 42. He didn't, he certainly wouldn't have had time. He had about a couple of weeks. He certainly wouldn't have known anything about the Fermi experiment. He, I, 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 there's no evidence that he knew anything about the plaque uh, to which this would be a gloss, very unusual, maybe the only big public sculpture in the world uh, in which the actual monument itself is a gloss on an, on an already existing inscription. What he did know was that that McNeil, in a letter to him, and said, we intend this site to become a place of a world historic site of place of pilgrimage. Uh, 
So already the kind of the, sac the sacrality of the, of the site is insisted upon by the, the big historian. And wanting it to be a marker, of course, of the birth of the atomic age. And this whole, the, the metaphorics of birthing and uh, reproduction are very interestingly built into the science of the nucleus. McNeil later recalled the site as he found it. What happened was that McNeil used to walk past this site, which is at the corner of 57th and Ellis. He says this, it was then a piece of waste ground, the original shelter having been torn down owing to radiation pollution of the walls. Weeds grew and a chain fence carried a plaque, well worded, mind you. It's interesting, see, McNeil thinks this is a well worded plaque in bronze, and that was all. What was this experiment about? Well, it was crucial for the Manhattan Project. The making of the atomic bomb simply couldn't happen unless criticality could be established. In order for an explosion to happen, there had to be a self-sustaining nuclear reaction. It was unclear how much uranium was needed to make that happen. And in fact, the amount was crucial. If it was too much, it couldn't it couldn't even be carried in a, in a plane. Maybe it could be carried in a, in a boat and um, a bomb could be delivered, you know, into a harbor or something. But nobody quite knew. And there was a, some of you may know, there's very interesting uh, evidence coming out now about, you know, the, the German attempt to make a bomb. But when the plaque says, initiated the controlled release of nuclear energy, and McNeil went on to call it, quote, a beautifully restrained statement, that seems to me a compounding of the dissembling going on here. Because what it initiated was, of course, the uncontrolled release of nuclear energy, in particular over the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's as if the chemists involved in the wartime development of ammonia, uh, you know, ammonia-based high explosives, were to, were to be described as thereby initiating the controlled release of agricultural fertilizer. And in fact, Fermi, Enrico Fermi, in 1946, at the, after the end of the war, in talking, in a speech to the citizens, the citizen board of the University of Chicago, was completely explicit. He made it crystal clear, and this is what he said. These piles that have been constructed have really been constructed for plutonium for atom bombs, and apparently they're quite good in that respect. They produce, however, terrific amounts of energy, and this energy is wasted. It is wasted for two reasons. First, the piles have been designed in time of war and at a time when energy was not a critical commodity. So they have not been designed for producing energy, but designed for producing plutonium. Fermi makes it completely clear. The thing I want to say right now is that this equivocation between atom bomb and atom energy I mean, think of the Atomic Energy Commission. When the, you know, what, what's the Department of Energy? What's its real job? It was, in fact, you know, the making of bombs. That marks the official narratives of nuclearism from the very beginning. And it doesn't matter whether the slippage which you find in the documents all over is unconscious or deliberate. That doesn't really matter. The point is that from the very first days of what we call the Atomic Age, there's a tremendous mystification uh, of atomic history in which the university authorities are deeply complicit. And in that history, Henry Moore's sculpture comes to play a part with results unforeseen by McNeil and his committee.
Now, it's interesting that they chose Henry Moore. The money that eventually came to pay Henry Moore came from the Ferguson Fund, whose trustees uh, happened to veto funds for a, another public sculpture in Chicago by Picasso on account of his communist sympathies. <laughs> Moore himself had a radical past. By, by the 1960s, he'd sort of recycled himself as a you know, in line, uh, his sort of self-mythification, in line with the safe modernist master. But in fact, uh, his own actual past was much more interesting than his self-mythification. As a young man, he'd, uh, he'd signed uh, the, the British Surrealist Manifesto. He was involved in left and anarchist politics. He was involved with the Artists International Association, whose mission was to mobilize against imperialist war on the Soviet Union, against fascism, and against colonial oppression. I mean, this was the explicit, so that he, in that sense, he was happy to be a, an artist propagandist. And uh, certainly the Chicago boys, I think, would not have known of his projected visit to Spain during the Civil War in the company of Paul Robeson. Uh, the Foreign Office, in fact, refused travel documents. But much more important and relevant to, to this story now um, is that there was plenty of evidence, if they had cared to look, about Moore's public position on atomic weapons and the fact that he was a founder sponsor of the campaign for nuclear disarmament in the late 50s. His name was on the founding document. Still, they went ahead. Now, well, let's go back to the site for a minute. Look, this is in the middle of Chicago. What was the Manhattan Project doing beginning in the middle of the city, in particular uh, an experiment whose end result might be what we would now call the China Syndrome. So it's a very bizarre site in a number of ways. As I told you, it's an underground rackets court beneath the derelict West Grandstand of Stagg Field. Stagg Field was the old football ground of the University of Chicago, which had been decommissioned by Hutchins, uh, the famous, uh, you know, Tweedy humanist president, in a gesture against Philistine sports culture. It was lying derelict, perfect. The original plan had been, and for good reason, to locate the reactor, Chicago Pile Number 1, it came to be called, CP1, in a purpose-built structure in the Argonne Forest Reserve outside Chicago, quite near O'Hare Airport, actually. But a strike of carpenters and the building trades against the engineering contractor, which was Stone and Webster, one of the huge contractors, threatened to delay construction indefinitely, and Fermi was very anxious in case General Groves, who was in charge, of course, of the Manhattan Project, the boss of not only Fermi and Compton, but also Oppenheimer, in case Groves simply decided to bypass the Chicago section. There were five plausible ways to make an atom bomb, and they decided, because... They were worried, of course, that, that the Third Reich might have got there first under Heisenberg to go ahead on all five paths at once. Such was the power of the United States to consider doing that. And the Fermi pile was one of these five. Fermi was also worried on other grounds. First of all, he was worried about the patent that he was contemplating on the bomb process. He estimated that he was going to make, in the six figures, uh, make money off the bomb process. So he wanted desperately to make this thing go. Secondly, he was also worried about his immigration status. He had fled Mussolini 
uh, quite late. Uh, his wife, Laura, was, uh, was Jewish. He, he wasn't. He had been a professor uh, of physics at Rome, probably the greatest uh, physicist of the 20th century, if you consider the fact that he was both uh, a brilliant experimentalist as well as a theoretician. Very, very unusual to get a combination, and Fermi was certainly the greatest. Ex officio, he was a member of the fascist party, which was therefore prescribed by the State Department. So he was being followed and so forth. Remember, this was a secret project. He was extremely keen, therefore, to get his green card. So Arthur Compton, his boss, the boss of the Chicago section, has to make a dreadful decision, and that's a quote from Compton himself. Whether to go ahead with Fermi's suggestion and build a secret reactor in the middle of the city. And here's what Compton said. I found this in the archives, in a, mem in a memo. I should have taken the matter to my superior, but this would have been unfair. President Hutchins was in no position to make an independent judgment of the hazards involved. Based on considerations of the university's welfare, the only answer he could have given would have been no. And this answer would have been wrong. Compton explained, We did not see how a true nuclear explosion, such as that of an atomic bomb, could possibly occur. Well, actually, the, the official historian of the Manhattan Project put it this way. He said Compton was nevertheless risking, quote, a small Chernobyl in the midst of a crowded city. Now, Fermi himself, Enrico Fermi, or Henry Farmer, that was the name he was given inside the Manhattan Project to confuse the enemy. Henry Farmer was himself confident that the critical experiment, crowning a long series of smaller exponential piles, these were piles of, of graphite uh, in which uranium was embedded, uh, could be controlled. And, and these very small piles actually began in Manhattan itself at the University of Columbia and was moved to Chicago when the Manhattan Project uh, cranked up in, in late 42. Could be controlled with a 13-foot cadmium-covered wooden pole pushed in and out of the reactor by hand. To reassure the less confident, a three-man suicide squad was posted near the ceiling of the racket's court, armed with jugs of cadmium solution to toss over the graphite in order to dampen a runaway reaction. And also at the ready was a physicist with an axe who uh, was going to cut a rope that was slung over the balcony of the, the viewing balcony of the racket's court. And then uh, a cadmium rod would, would drop into the pile from above. This pile was improvised by Fermi. Um, it was in the shape of a flattened sphere. It was about 27, 28 feet tall. Uh, it was 400 tons of uranium-charged graphite bricks. These were very smooth, very, very high-quality graphite bricks, which were piled up slowly over a matter of days, in fact, weeks with the help of a crew of uh, high school dropouts, uh, a Chicago street gang called the Back of the Yards Boys. And in these uh, graphite bricks uh, were these eggs of uranium in a lattice formation, which Fermi had uh, decided was the optimal way to get uh, a critical reaction. Now, there's an eyewitness, Herbert Anderson, who has an interesting description in the archives. He remembers the, most of all, the crescendo of the Geiger counters as the last control rod was gradually withdrawn. 
six inches at a time, and Fermi standing on the balcony with his slide rule. Then, and this is Anderson, then the clicks came more and more rapidly, and after a while they began to merge into a roar. Suddenly Fermi raised his hand. The pile has gone critical, he announced. The reactor ran for four and a half minutes, and then Fermi ordered the rod to be reinserted, and then it went subcritical. The, the slow neutrons were being absorbed by the, by the cadmium, which was simply tacked onto a, basically a two-by-four. News of the self-sustaining chain reaction was conveyed to Washington in a coded exchange. Um, and this is an interesting exchange, the, the, the code that they use. This is an exchange between Compton, his boss, and the young chemist who'd been president of Harvard at that point called Conant. And the exchange went this way. The Italian navigator has just landed in the new world. Reply, were the natives friendly? Compton, everyone landed safe and happy. Now, of course, the Italian navigator is, this is Fermi Columbus. Leo Zillard was on that balcony that day. It was very, very cold, and they could see their breath. Uh, and they were standing there with a bottle of Chianti. And it was Zillard who, in 1933, in London, as he walked across Southampton Row and the world cracked open, had been the first to consider at that moment how it might be possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction and liberate energy on an industrial scale and to make a bomb. And he stayed behind on the rackets court. There was a crowd there, he said later, and then Fermi and I stayed there alone. I shook hands with Fermi and I said I thought this day would go down as a black day in the history of mankind. A black day in the history of mankind. Leo Zillard later said that when he crossed Southampton Road on that day, he also knew in a flash of recognition that by his invention, universal death might come into the world. This was part one of a two-part story on Enrico Fermi and the beginning of the nuclear age from the timeless archives of TUC Radio. You heard a chapter from the upcoming book, The Long Theft, by the Irish historian of technology, Ian Ball, recorded in March 2002 at a series of events where scientists and historians met with a small circle of friends They gave previews of projects that had not yet appeared in any public space. Ian Ball was educated at Oxford, Cambridge and London universities. He has taught at Harvard and Stanford and is affiliated with the Geography Department at UC Berkeley. Join us for the conclusion of this story at the next broadcast of TUC Radio on this station. The Italian physicist Enrico Fermi set off the first nuclear chain reaction in an underground rackets court at the University of Chicago. His experiment led directly to the building of the plutonium bomb that destroyed the city of Nagasaki. The University of Chicago in the early 60s decided to commemorate the Fermi experiment in order to claim that the birth of the atomic age happened on their grounds on December 2nd, 1942, at half past three in the afternoon. The historian McNeil negotiated with the most famous outdoor sculptor of that time, Henry Moore, 
whose 12-foot bronze sculpture sits on that site today. You can hear this program again on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. That's tucradio.org. Look under Newest Programs. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.